If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's essentially the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need on one place. Let me explain. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your pod right from your phone or your computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your pod on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey guys, welcome to Let's Process This with Melinda Hill. We are happy you're here. We, meaning me, pretending I'm a we for some reason. Hi. Let's Process This is a podcast about processing and overcoming trauma and transforming it into creative treasure and life treasure because we are not defined by what happened to us, but we are defined by what we do with what happens to us. Hello. We also talk creative process, like how does stuff get made? How are people making things? How are people making it through things? My intention is that you will feel inspired and empowered and illuminated by the insights that you find here. And also, of course, entertained. Some quick announcements for you. If you're so inspired, please support this podcast by subscribing for free wherever you get your pods and rating it and leaving a nice review. Yummy, yummy review time. You can become a patron now directly on anchor.com or on patreon.com. So hop over there and become a patroon. You can access all this stuff at my website, melindahill.com. If you can do all or any of that, we are so grateful. We, of course, just meaning me. Another announcement for you. Very exciting. My comedy special, Inappropriate, is now out. What? Yes! I am so excited to share this comedy special with you. You can get it at melindahill.com or wherever you get your specials. It's also a comedy album. And you can get that wherever you get your comedy albums. The special is called Melinda Hill, Inappropriate. Few people said a few things about it. Hollywood Chicago says, combine the hilarity of prime observational comedy with the zen of inner peace, and you have Melinda Hill's stand-up special, Inappropriate. The sharp master of laughs delivers an hour of riffs on her life and her loves. Off the Tracks goes on to say, Melinda's special is bold, funny, and deep. A hilarious comedy hour jam-packed with laughs. Speaks to her development as a joke writer and deliverer, but also arrives at exactly the right time. Ooh, we love arriving at the right time. Gotta love that divine timing. Guys, did I mention that we are so happy that you are here today. Thank you so much for all of your support. Let's get into it, shall we? Hi, Hi, Kristen, how are you? Oh, I'm alive. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
That's baseline. <laughs> yeah. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm so happy to um, see you today because I've been on your website looking at all the cool things you're doing. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's, um, uh, you know, it's it's the best of times and the worst of times, definitely. I've been getting the chance to really, uh, for years, I've worked as a writing coach, and that's just what I do, and I ghostwrite and, um, and have sort of always done it informally and through word of mouth, and then finally was like, oh, shit, we should, like, formalize this and get an LLC. <laughs> so, yeah. So what? So what exactly is that? Your story coaching, or how would so, you describe yeah, it? In your... I, um, so for I mean, I've been doing it a really long time. I started out in book publishing. That's actually my background, and I worked as an editor for years in self help. And I worked with like Dr. Phil and Stephen Covey and Tony Robbins and all those people. How was and, that? What did you do for them? I edited books. Um, I famously, I actually was, uh, I edited Dr. Phil's, but this is all before I got sober. So this was during double lifetime. And what, is I actually that? what edited, does that mean, double <laughs> lifetime? Oh my God. Yeah. So I edited Dr. Phil's book when I was, I mean, this is, I was super young. I was like 24 and I worked for an editor who didn't want to edit anymore. He just wanted to like lay on a couch and complain about his job which was great. I mean, it gave me a lot of opportunity. And so, um, but also I was a drug addict. So those two things, you know, I mean, I'm an opportunist and a drug addict. So I jumped on the opportunity, but like with Dr. Phil's book, I actually edited self matters, like super high on Adderall and bong hits. And <laughs> wait, so because wait, back up because bong hits make me super sleepy, but did they, yeah. did the Adderall work? And it just made a cocktail that you were like, I'm able to ride this out and work best in this? Or how did that work for you? So my husband has a whole theory around there's two types of pot in this world. There's downer pot and there's upper pot. And I, I mean, he thinks it's sativa versus indica. And I don't know if that's true. We've got, this is actually a source of major contention. There's a lot of Googling around like, what are the effects of sativa versus indica? And like, I'm 14 years sober and he's 17 years sober. And this will still happen like in the car with the kids in the backseat. I'm like, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. But I do agree with him around that there's like uppers pot and downers pot. And I was always, because I'm an uppers kind of gal, I always knew what kind of uppers pot to smoke that would give me some jazzy Jeffness and I would be ready to rock and roll. And I, yeah, and I edited a lot of people's books, super stoned and super high. So were you, <laughs> would you like wake and bake and start editing? Was it like your oh, yeah. coffee? Yeah. And at night I was, I would like get home from my day job and, you know, like blow a few lines, like pull a full, few bingers, you know, um, and then get to work. And like, I would, you know, edit all night long and get to work the next day with no sleep and send the manuscript off for, to Dr. Phil or uh, Chris Matthews was another one that I actually helped to ghostwrite one of his books. Like, basically plastered and um but now i think it's called now let me tell you what i really think was the title of the book it's <laughs> great it's fine do you feel like when you look back in retrospect at those edits 
do you feel like, yeah, that was actually good work. It was working for me. Or do you feel like, oh, I, it would be different if I was, if I were to be editing sober now? Oh, there's definitely a difference, but I'll say, I mean, I think if I was a drug addict in 43 in editing, it would be terrible. Like it would be a mess, but there's something about being 24 and a drug addict that you're a little bit of like a puppy, you know? And so you just kind of get away with things you can never get away with. And I don't know, there's like a little bit of magic to the work that I actually think the quality and it being really good, if just kind of like a weird beginner's luck. You know, like that shit doesn't last forever, but you can really, it's why people like, like actors will get really big while they're still drug addicts, but like, then like they can't stay that way. They can't like they have to get it. sober. They can't sustain it because it, it starts to, not for everyone, but for many yeah. go downhill. Yeah. But at first it's almost part of the charm, you know, like, and I think it's the same thing with writing. Like at first it's kind of part of the brilliance of like, it actually helps and then it and then it all tanks out on you and then you're just miserable and you you, you can't keep it up so <laughs> i had that and then you get sober or die i had that experience too with doing stand up where it worked really well to have mm -hmm. several vodkas a night and mm -hmm. perform it kind of like worked as cuz there's so many nerves in those beginning stages of yeah. performing and finding your voice that it really, really helped. But then it became, it kind of crossed a line where it was uh, not helping anymore. Did you, what, at what point did you like cross the line? Um, you know, I ended up leaving New York book publishing and I moved out here to LA because I didn't think there'd be any cocaine in LA. And so I was like, oh, I'm just gonna go there and I'm gonna smoke pot and I'm gonna do yoga. And then um, I ended up getting my first job was as a waitress at Mirabelle. Do you remember Mirabelle? Mirabelle's on Sunset Strip. <laughs> yes. It was by, what was that? There was like that strip of places like that, yes. right? It was Red Rock was right next door. And Mirabelle's were like, men would regularly offer me checks to sleep with me. And they were all like, there were this old, I mean, I'm so grateful for it. It was like that old version of LA that like, they're all dead now, you know, it was like, they had been big at one point, like they're probably, they peaked in like 1986, but this was now like 2000. So they, they were like 14 years post peak, you know, but they still had some cash. So, <laughs> and they were the ones, there was like an outdoor. So this was, <laughs> back when smoking just became illegal indoors and it was like a big brouhaha that you couldn't smoke inside anymore and um you, you don't remember these old days and i do so everybody was like all in an uproar and mirabelle had a, like an outdoor patio where you could still smoke and so it attracted this like very specific group of older men that wanted to like smoke their cigars on the patio but it was still like enclosed a little bit so like for incremental weather so <laughs> so they would straight up offer you checks sweetie yeah. could take a check for 50 you want to come home spend the night tonight i take care of the rent huh sweetie i take care of the how much is the rent sweetie tell me what is the rent how, I how take care of the rent how would you react to such to such offer promising offers i'm, I'm a little disappointed i never you know when you think back of like the things you should have done i might i maybe i should have said yes i mean it could have opened up a career path who knows where i'd be now i mean <laughs> Well, you, yeah. Um, so I, um, I never, I never said no. 
Uh, and then, but I, I earned a certain, because I never said, I mean, I never said yes, but I think because I never said yes, I actually earned the respect of that group and ended up becoming like one of the members. So when I would get off work, I was actually allowed to like join them at the table and they all had like really good weed, actually speaking of good weed, they all had like the fancy weed that I couldn't afford to buy at that time. So like I would get stoned with them and hang out and then they became just like father figures. And so, you know, I think that's the... I think that's the usual relationship with anybody that you are dealing with nefariously in money. Like I had that with drug dealers too, where like once they realized they couldn't sleep with me, they were like, Oh, I'm your daddy now. Now I'd be your daddy. That's my general um, man offering you money accent. Oh, I'm your daddy. Wait, I did it yeah. wrong. I made it a little Italian. I'm your daddy. <laughs> I wish they were Italian, you know, maybe I would have said yes. Okay, um, you be my dad. Remove. I think in general that's a very that's a that's a good a good good rule of thumb is if you don't sleep with people, they act better. Yes, it is. <laughs> For all ages. Not not just on the Sunset Strip in two thousand and two. <laughs> I mean not exclusively, but I find Yeah. Uh, I mean, my current husband, like my current, I mean, we've been together long enough. I don't think he's going anywhere at this moment. I mean, I want to kill him today, but um, my husband, who I am married to, we slept together the first time we ever hung out. And it was like the only time where that like worked out. Like I was kind of, I was like, time? I actually slept with him because I didn't want it to go anywhere. So it was really? like, oh, I'll sleep with you. And then this will just not happen. Yeah, I'll, I'll sleep with you. Then you'll go away. That's backfired on me before too, where they actually wanted to, stay longer yeah yeah so how did you like so you were like this is not this not going anywhere we're just gonna hook yeah. up and then yeah. at what point did it turn into i'm going to marry this person um well i think that was part of why we continued because then it was it, it didn't take long within a few it, I mean, probably even days i was like oh fuck i think i'm gonna marry this person i was not i'm <laughs> <laughs> How could you tell? Like, what gave it away? I really liked him. Um, actually, I don't even know that I really liked him. I think that I just had never felt more comfortable with somebody. So I think that's like, that was the, that has always been the, like, um, the reason, even when I actually do want to kill him right now, I'm PMSing and, and like, I don't want to blame that. I want to just say that he's terrible, but I think it might have something to do with hormones, but Sure. I was actually just talking to someone who said, like, you know, there's not a lot of agency when you're PMSing. Like, it's so much nicer for it to actually feel like a concrete, real problem that you have to solve or murder um, versus like, oh, it's just my hormones, which I actually have very little power to change unless I like figure out a new supplement or something that, you know, that's like hard work. Um, so, but I think uh, when I'm not PMSing, um, usually that was the, that was like the first sign in our relationship and has really been the foundation of our relationship of just like, we feel super comfortable with each other. Mm -hmm. Like I've, I've even said, this is probably the, the TMI part, but like, you know how, like when you sleep with certain people, like some folks, like you get like UTIs with, or like a yeast infection, or like you just like, it's like your body responds negatively to them. And like, I told my husband, like in the 10 years I've been with him, like I've never had any of that. Like I've never had a single yeast infection, right? Like it was just like our pH balances met perfectly. And that was just like, I wasn't like, I was like, oh my God, I'm so in love. I'm going to marry this person. It was more like, I feel like I'm related to them. 
and I like we already felt like family. So that's really inspiring. Did you now? I know you wrote a book about a bunch of dates, right? Yes. Okay. So <laughs> did you, how did you manifest? Do you feel like you manifested your husband by making some kind of list or like, what was your process? And also I want to hear about the book. Yeah, I wrote, um, so 5150, which it's been 10 years since it came out and that's crazy, but I went on a date a week. So I started writing it when I had when you're sober and, um, I followed the rules and I didn't date for the first year. Um, but I had actually had a year sober prior to that. And then I relapsed. So I had been like, I hadn't dated anybody in like over two years. Like, and I never really gone out on a date because I wasn't sober. And like, so I just slept with people and sometimes they didn't leave. Like that was how, that was what dating was. Like, I didn't know how to go out and have coffee and then just like go home separately and then like text the next day, you know, like I didn't, I didn't understand that ritual. And so, um, so that's, I decided to learn how to date and write a book about it. And, um, and I think that I, so I went on a date a week for an entire year, but some of them were multiple dates with the same guys. And then about a couple months in, um, I had actually, uh, dated someone who I'm sure you and I both know in the world. Of who, so is and who is it? Who is it? Jeff Electric. Uh, Jeff doesn't mind. That sounds familiar. Oh, you don't know Jeff? I feel like he's so east side. I mean, back in the 2000s, he was like the dude. Okay, you know? okay. He rode a motorcycle. He dated all the pretty girls. And like, I was so like, oh my God. It was like, I seriously felt like the nerdy girl in the library. And suddenly the like quarterback was like, you. And I was like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> is that his real last name or is that a stage name? Huh? Is that his real last name or is that that's, a stage name? No, that's, he had, he's an electrician. So in the book, we called him Jimmy Voltage, but Jeff doesn't mind. He's, his cover has long been blown. Does he, um, does he like being written about as a character or do you, I, I'm sure he did. Yeah. I think I find typically guys love being written about, like even yeah. if the story didn't end well or whatever in my standup, I I think they really enjoy it, but I never use real names. I really obscure people's identities if I use real people to yeah. inspire things. Yeah, and I did the same, and um, only one person didn't, and it was actually like the first date that I went on. And on paper, he seemed like perfect for me. Like he was, uh, he was actually a writer, a comedy writer, and he worked in TV and. Um, I think he, I went to like a small private liberal arts school on, in the Northeast and he had done the same. And, you know, like it was just very like, oh, like this is the person my parents would think I would marry. Right. Like this is the guy that like you match up with. And um, but I had he was a total normie, which meant he doesn't wasn't an alcoholic and a super nice guy. And I just don't think I was ready for that. Like I, I found that all very um, jarring and like weird to me. And I remember like he used so this was like back like people didn't really have I guess we had just started to have iPhones or maybe not when is this 2007 so no we didn't we didn't have iPhones so like people had GPS systems in their car that they would use to navigate but and he used it and it was like telling him how to get around LA and I was like and so I, I judged him for it. Like, I just thought I was like, oh my God, what a loser. He uses a navigation system. Like he doesn't know his way around this town. And so, so anyway, 
in the book, I kind of, I'm, I wouldn't say I was mean because I thought he was a really like sweet person, but I also just realized like I wasn't ready to date someone who was like a quote normie. And he read it many years later and wrote me and said, it's so funny you thought I was a normie because two weeks later I tried to kill myself and I went into a mental institution for six months. And I was like, oh my God, like I felt horrible, but it was also like a really, like it was a a huge lesson of like, you know, we really don't know what anybody's ever going through. Like, and the way we present ourselves to the world is never actually in alignment with who we really are. So, um, whereas some people I think loved the, the sort of me chatting about them, um, for a lot of people, they weren't, uh, you know, for others, like with him, you know, like my description of who he was actually didn't match the, the goods at all. So, um, Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, after that book, I, uh, I didn't, I, I mean, spoiler alert, I didn't actually end up with anybody at the end of the book. And I was still, you know, I ended up with a book deal, which was awesome. Okay. <laughs> so. so walk me through how that happened. You're, you're out there, you're going on a date a week. Your, your, yeah. your vow is to go on 50 dates. I'm assuming yeah. you made that with your therapist or someone, or was it just uh, by yourself? Was it just by yourself that you said, I'm going on 50 dates? I said I was going on 50 dates and actually my, I end up getting a therapist in the middle of the book. So going back to the Jeff Electric story, uh, he ends up breaking my heart and uh, after three weeks. Um, and so it was very quick, but it, you know, that's the, 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 I forget how quickly our hearts can get broken. Um, so uh, after three weeks, my heart was broken and uh, my boss at the time recommended a therapist, but she was also a traditional Peruvian healer. And this is kind of before people were doing this. Like now it's like goop and like really like it's big business. But like at the time it was just like, I went to this woman's house in Chatsworth and we did an hour of talk therapy. And then I lay down on the floor and I like had a rock placed on me and she like did shamanic work over my body. And like nobody, like all my friends were like, what the fuck are you doing, Kristen? And I was like, I don't know, but I know like something is changing in me. And I think the biggest piece, like I was doing that at the same time that I was writing this book. So I think I was definitely like magical and psychological, like creating what I wanted out of my life and really like building this vision of what I wanted. And um, I ended up getting it. Um, now I realize like now I have it and I have to learn how to negotiate it on its hard days. Cause like, you know, like anything, right. Like none of it's ever perfect and it's still life and it's hard. But, um, but in that I told, I did the list like at some point and I later found the list and my husband is awesome. I don't think he'll mind me saying this, but he struggles financially and always has like, he's the, like the, like if he would love to do work and never get paid for it. <laughs> He'd be so good at that. <laughs> so, um, like, he loves being of service. He's really good at that. Loves showing up for people and helping out. Um, so I did not actually, but then when I went back and looked at that list, like, I had nothing, I didn't write anything down about the person's finance or, um, like, ever wanting somebody who had even, like, financial stability, let alone wealth. And I think it really goes to show that, like, that just actually wasn't important to me and that it really was about someone who I would feel at home with and who, like, love the adventure as much as I do. And so I ended up getting exactly what I asked for. So just be careful what you ask for is my. <laughs> so. Okay. Thanks for that tip. And how did you find your dates? How did you find your one date a week? Were you, this was before Tinder, right? So 
Well, it wasn't. So I started thinking I really had never done that much online dating. And I actually thought like, oh, I'll just get referrals, you know, that people will like hand me people. And like by date seven, like I had tapped all my friends, like I was out of that. And so I went to the internet and most of my dates then came from online. I forget now even what the site, oh, it was The Onion. So The Onion, do you remember that? (laughs) The Onion had a dating site, but it was like a feeder into like, I think Salon and like Mm. Radar. They don't even exist anymore, but it was like a feeder site for like four major websites, like all kind of shared the same pool. And it was, it was definitely like a like-minded person that like reads the onion or reads salon. So you got a lot of the same, like a lot of comedy writers. I mean, that's what it was. It was like 80% comedy writers and (laughs) like, it was like the same guy just over and over again. Um, and a couple of entertainment attorneys. And so, um, and then just like a mixed bag, like one pro tennis guy who like didn't want to talk to me the entire day because I, I think he was disappointed. I feel like there are so many lawyers and comedy writers on dating apps still. Yes. I think it's their lonely careers because you have to spend so much time doing, building those careers. I don't know, but I mean, I just noticed a lot of them, but. Or there's just a lot of comedy writers and lawyers like across Los Angeles. I don't know. I mean, I think like in other towns, you probably get like, oh, this one has like a lot of construction workers and a lot of like, I don't know, like oil and gas executives, right? But like LA is like filled with lawyers and comedy writers. Yeah, exactly. So So in your year of 50 dates, what were the big takeaways? What did you learn? What did you glean? How did you grow? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think, well, for me, I think the biggest thing that I realized was that I had been single a really long time. I mean, I was in my 20s, so, you know, but I also, like, most of my friends were dating, like, in serious relationships or getting married and having babies, and, like, I was not having that experience Um, and had been really single since I was like 24 and I was, um, 30 when the book started, but like there, so it was like eight years that I was basically like single, like, like nothing, like there was like blips on the map, you know, but like no boyfriend. Um, and so I, um, and I was like, oh my God, like maybe I'm never going to meet someone. And I think that by the end of the book, what I realized was that I, I was okay with that. Like I actually, um, I wasn't afraid of being alone. I'd actually really like learned to love the adventure, but I think there was also a piece of me that knew that that likely wasn't going to happen. Like I just kind of came to this in the same way that I actually came to know that the book was going to get published. Like I just believed that it was going to get published and I knew it was going to happen. Um, I also just sort of knew that I was ultimately going to meet someone and likely have children. And I remembered sitting in, um, uh, recovery meeting and someone shared about how when she was single and she was living in a studio apartment and all she imagined was having like the three bedroom house and like the husband and the kids and the dog. And now she had the husband, the kids and the dog. And all she does is sit around and daydream and wish that she was alone in a studio apartment. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, like that moment, it wasn't that necessarily that a had to turn into B, but that no matter what, each one served, like each one had its own joy. And that like, I really like the, 
the subtitle of the book ended up being The Magical Adventures of a Single Life. And I almost wish that had just been the title because it really was about like the magical adventures that we get when we are single mm-hmm. and like the things that we get to do and the like the fun we get to have, but also just those like, like going to that therapist and having that life-changing experience and having the space to like create all of these adventures and all this healing and um, so by the end of it, it actually became way less about finding the guy. And in fact, I didn't find the guy and I wasn't even that really like attentive to finding somebody afterwards, um, which, you know, like, like all good things, it always happens when you're not looking, which is the most annoying statement ever when you want something. But, um, <laughs> but also, um, like, I know we struggled to get pregnant with both our kids and, and our first, like, we just weren't getting pregnant. And my husband is like, we're getting a dog and we got a dog. And I love the dog so much. I could care less whether I got pregnant because I was like, oh my God, this dog is all I've ever needed. In fact, I still say that like the dog, I really didn't need to even get married and have kids as long as I had Peter because he's the most handsome man on the planet. And, <laughs> and he is, um, and my husband is also in love with him and, uh, in a, in a romantic way. Um, and we, uh, <laughs> we both probably could have done without each other if we just had Peter and, uh, and then I got pregnant because mm-hmm. like, I just, you know, it didn't really matter anymore whether I got pregnant. Um, and so I think that's been the case for all things that once you sort of let go of that outcome or let go of the expectation, you make room for what is supposed to come in. And so that was definitely where I was by the end of that book. And, and it, you know, it ended up getting me, giving me the career that I, I became a professional writer out of that, which is not something easy to do as we all know. And, um, I mean, I've had to go back a few years ago, I went back into, and I got a day job working in a nonprofit and in fundraising. And I just quit that job in September, which is super exciting. Um, and yay. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and really began to scale, you know, over the last 10 years, I've been ghostwriting and working with um, a number of clients on book proposals and like really coaching people through the writing process. And then now I like everybody and their dog was like, wait a sec, like I can scale this with courses. I mean, I've been helping people to write books for 20 years. I have systems and tactics to help them do that and um, and really start coaching people on a much more formal process versus just like, Oh, Hey, I know somebody, you know? So, um, so it's been, you know, and I, we moved to Ojai and now I have a three bedroom house and two kids and a husband and a dog and man, would I kill for a studio apartment? (laughs) (laughs) I, Oh my God. I, first of all, I love Ojai. Second of all, super inspiring. And thank you for sharing those takeaways. And, and third, like, so that's so great that you're story coaching or, or coaching writers, because mm-hmm. I feel like there, there are a lot of people coaching, but not all of them have actually been best-selling authors. So that's really a great service that you offer. Like, what are your big takeaways when you, or like, what's your process when you work with people that's helped you the most that you see also helping others? Yeah, for me, it's really, I think a lot of people, a lot of folks that I work with usually have an idea, but an idea isn't a book, right? Like, or, you know, I mean, even, and I work with companies too. I'm working right now with somebody who has an idea for a, um, like a financial services. And so it's like, okay, the idea is great, but we actually have to sculpt content out of just an idea. And so that's really where I come in. Um, I've always said like, 
they, as they call it, like the zone of genius. Like my zone of genius is like, you give me your idea and I can immediately parcel that out into like the tent poles of your business or your book or like, or fundraising for a nonprofit. Like it's actually about like, okay, that's great. Like you have a foundation, but now we need to build the house. And so, um, so I really work with folks to identify like, what are the tenets of their message? But in order to get there, like we have to really talk about who they are and what they want to say to the world. Um, yeah, I was just on a client call before this um, and it's an educator who's doing a book about what education is going to look like after 2020 because her shit is fucked up. And, and so, um, and so it's like, okay, like, we started like I always my first call, I actually have them give me their bio, not in the way that I could read it on their website, but we actually go through their life story. And that's and what came out was like he always wanted to be a leader. And at the end of the day, the way we're talking about how do we change education and particularly since like the whole system is broken right now and we have a real opportunity I mean, in all areas, right? Like 2020 has given us this incredible opportunity where everything got cracked in half. We can either patch it up so it looks like it did a year ago or we can rebuild it so that it actually looks like what it needs to look like. And I think we're all experiencing that personally in our own lives that like what version of your life do you want to live? And like, if this isn't the version, this is your opportunity to build that life. Um, but I think that we're seeing that on, on like larger systems too. And that's like, so with this client, like we are really working to kind of show where like leadership is ultimately the answer and like figuring out who are the change agents because like, you know, is it federal government? Is it parents? Like, or somewhere in between, like, where do we actually make the change that we know needs to happen? And we recognize there's an opportunity to do it right now. And I think that's, you know, that's true for all of us. Like, who's going to be the change agent in your life, you know? And, um, and so I really, uh, you know, when I work with clients, that's my goal is for us to figure out, okay, what does, uh, what do you want to look like? What does that TED talk look like? What is what does that those fundraising elements look like or the programs for your nonprofit or if you're building a business, you know, what does your website even look like? I mean, I do all types of content, but um, but to me it's really about the power of storytelling, which I think um similar to you, right? Like we just we've recognized how story is so important, not just for like how we engage with each other and entertain one another, but really how like we just shift the narrative of this crazy world we live in. And I mean, outside of having a guillotine in the back of my CRV, which I am totally down for because I don't, I do not mind participating in bloody revolution if need be, but um, the safer and maybe more loving way is to write. And so, um, so for right now we're writing until until the molotovs go off <laughs> well we really have a lot in common with our work because i also work with people to you know re i'm more rewriting re their narrative where but i'm but i'm also focusing on message and mission and what value you're offering the world but that is i don't know about the book world so that's like so exciting like so when you made your bestseller um, did you, how did you get from there to your second one? To the second book? No. Well, I'm still working on that one. Oh. Um, yeah. 
So I ended up after 5150, um, I started ghostwriting so much that I wasn't working on my own books. I was writing other people's books for them, which, you know, talk about value. It's like, hmm, like there, there's a certain point it became like this, I'm hiding behind being a ghostwriter, you know? And, um, and so I, I feel like I'm in my own like Woody Allen movie, but without the creepy backstory of like the writer that's like, I, I never wrote the second book, you know, <laughs> but then I did. Um, so I wrote a second book starting in 2016, which is a novel. Um, cause I started to write a memoir and then I realized it was just going to be about, if I wrote a memoir, it'd be like about my boring married life with kids. And I mean, I know there are a lot of women making a lot of dough writing about being moms. Um, that's yeah. just to me, like not my bag. I mean, I, I like parenting for the most part, but, um, I don't like, I don't see it as like my primary focus in life. Like talk about your message or your hook. Like I'm way more interested in how we change the world and what systems change looks like. And I mean, I've studied revolutions at the, in my, for my bachelor's degree and my master's degree. And so I just like, I'm, I've never studied uh, children. Like I like them and I'm glad I have two of them, but like, they're not my, they're not my life's focus <laughs> in that sense. So I didn't want to write a memoir about like just being a mom and like, or it would just be like two people, like it was about my husband and I, I'd just be like two people arguing about finance all the time. Like no one wants to read that shit, you know, be like, <laughs> so there's not enough money. We need more savings. You know, like that's not exciting. We don't even, we don't drink. We don't cheat on each other. Like we're really pretty boring. So do I you, decided you? to write a novel and, um, and I based the characters are loosely based on my husband and I, cause I think that's just normal for most people when they write their first novel, it's like, okay, you write what you know, you know, and it just feels safer. But, um, but the book takes a very hard left turn by the end of chapter one, that a mass shooting happens. And, um, what starts out as sort of like a domestic drama very quickly turns into a much bigger story about, um, about the troubles of our nation and how each of us have the ability to speak out against what's happening. Um, but we have to be willing to really, um, you know, step onto that stage and grab the mic. And we have to be willing to, to shout out that, you know, I, I always go back to, you know, I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. Like the, like all of us should have that moment right now, like in the next month. Um, yeah. but, you know, I think that, so it's really about a character, a woman, a mother, a wife who finally just gets mad as hell and she's not going to take it anymore. And, um, so that novel is now with my agent and is likely going to publishers in the next month. So it's, so uh, exciting. you know, a completely different world when you write fiction. So we'll, fingers crossed. That's so <laughs> exciting. So your first one that you wrote, um, like how long did it take each book proposal for you to write? like the 50 dates one versus this one. And like, what was your creative process with that? Sure. So with 5150, I wrote the entire book over the course of that year. And I mean, I will say this, if you're writing your first book, like having those deadlines of like, they were very small chapters because there were 51 chapters. So, I mean, obviously they weren't like 200 pages each or it would have been, you know, um, like the Shakespeare's compendium by the end. But um, so there were short chapters, but it forced me to write them like every week. And so I really stayed up on it. So by the end of that year, I had a first draft that I then rewrote a number of times. And 
So for most nonfiction, you actually go out on proposal. You don't send out new manuscript. Um, but because I had a full manuscript, my agent was like, let's just go on or, you know, what did we do? No, we initially did go out on proposal. So he was like, let's do the proposal. And we sent out a proposal and we didn't sell it. So then he said, you know what? I think people need to see this full manuscript. He loved it. And I mean, I think that's the biggest piece, right? Like find people who believe in your work because they're the ones that are going to fight for you even when you can't. And so he was like, let's take this on a manuscript. And he just like beat the pavement with that manuscript. And we got an editor, Dan Smetanka over at Counterpoint, who is amazing. And, um, and the, the, uh, crazy part of the story was Dan was actually at a different publisher at that time called Phoenix that was based in LA. And a month before it was supposed to come out, the publisher closed. And like, I was scheduled to be on the Today Show. I was going to have a USA Today review. I was, I had actually like done a whole interview and photo shoot for Marie Claire. Like I got a lot of, I had a really great publicist who was my ex-boyfriend at the time, actually. Um, so so I got like a lot of really good media and then the fucking publisher closes and I was like, what, like what? But thankfully they, they like the book hadn't gone to press, which meant that like the, the rights reverted back to me. And so Dan, who I adore to this day, and I, I hope he buys my novel because I couldn't imagine anybody else editing it, but he took it then to counterpoint where he moved to and we came and so it was supposed to be published in May. It ended up getting published in September and I got all that media back, which was incredible. So, um, but, uh, for this, for a novel, it has been like a way different process. And um, if I wasn't so annoyingly determined, I probably would have stopped a long time ago. But, um, but you know, talk about like, you, it, again, you have to get the people that believe in your work, but more than anything, you have to believe in your work. And um, I started writing this book um, after the Bataclan attacks in Paris, which I, my husband and I actually lived in Paris for a year after we got married. I did a master's program there. And those, that shooting um, happened two blocks from where we lived. And we know the guys in Eagles of Death Metal. And it was just, it was really hit close to home. Mm-hmm. Um, and then right after that, San Bernardino happened, which I worked in a courthouse 40 minutes away from where that happened at the regional center in San Bernardino. And then um, the shooting in Orlando, the Paul shooting happened in Orlando. And, um, and this was before Parkland. And it was just, I remember that year, you know, I worked in the children's courthouse where kids get taken away from their parents and people frequently threatened to come back with a gun. And I never walked through that lobby without keeping an eye out of like, where would I run to, you know? And, um, and then like my husband, you know, we went to like a concert. I remember in that tier, that time period. And I just kept like scanning the audience of like, was somebody going to shoot, you know? And so, um, so I really, I was just like, I, I don't have many other skills uh, other than to write. And so I just felt like that was my only way to respond to what felt like such a national trauma. And like someone said recently, like, we don't have national shootings anymore because we've had a pandemic to replace them. But, you know, we don't gather and we don't gather of this time period. But um, instead, we have 200,000 people dead from a pandemic. But um it's do you, um, what does it break down to your writing process per day? Do you do like an hour a day or is it all different? 
So I, I wish I did an hour a day, but with kids, it's like that, you know, back in the day, I think I was able to have much more structured writing. Um, but when I wrote my novel, I actually would do it at that time. I only had one child and actually that's, that is pretty close. So what I would do is I would put her down to sleep around 8 PM. I would have my cup of, cup of coffee while she was in the bathtub at like eight, I would drink a cup of coffee. I would get her to sleep and I would go and write for about two hours every night and um and it took me a year but i wrote that novel in a year was um, it was it pretty easy to write because you would just go on a date and you would transcribe the date yeah, right so it's totally. more like a journal and then this one with the with the bataclan and all that was probably a lot more in depth yeah and also fiction is completely different i mean the one thing about when you're writing memoirs you know how the story ends yeah. right and there's you're kind of you don't get to make a million choices so um i learned and i'm still learning i'm actually starting an mfa in january for fiction because i'm a really i do nonfiction editing coaching writing i'm a really strong nonfiction writer but fiction is a completely different world you know i mean you know game of thrones is not an article in time magazine so yeah. it's um the choice making is completely different and i realized when i was done writing that novel that i was so passionate about and i was like oh my masterpiece and i sent it to agents and i mean i published a book i do a lot of writing with age i mean i'm connect i'm not like a no i'm not an anybody but i'm not a nobody either i mean i know agents personally and nobody would take me on um i could not get an agent and i realized that i didn't know how to write a novel and that i just hadn't written a very successful novel um and i did what other people do is i hired an editor slash coach um i joined a fiction workshop that i did two rounds with this fiction workshop both for the first draft and then a rewrite that i did and then i you know i felt like i'd gotten enough feedback that i was ready to sort of do the final rewrites by myself and i just kind of went and i did them and uh on march 17th i remember because it's saint patrick's day i got my agent and so um which was amazing it was you know we were right it was the, like tuesday after pandemic had really hit we didn't know what was going on it was so crazy and um and so it was such just like a wild time that after years of writing this novel and trying to get an agent that like that was the day i got the agent and um um, I was on a walk with my daughter when it happened and I just couldn't even believe it. And it was the agent I had wanted to. So, I mean, not only did I get an agent, I got like the dream agent. So, wow. Yeah. That's so now a, we're, we're getting there this weekend. I'm actually going to a hotel. That's where I do a lot of writing because kids now we have a, we have a 21 month old, which makes writing like really hard. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I've had to get away. I went up to Esalen last year to start the rewrite process. And I, I will love say Esalen. to anybody listening, Esalen is far more accessible than, I mean, right now is not normal time, but when we are back in normal time, um, Esalen is for $600. I mean, that's what it costs. You get two nights in it. You share a room with three other people, but same, you know, same gender, whatever gender you identify. It's four, two bunk beds with a view of the ocean. And then you get amazing food three times a day. Like the best meals I've ever had in my life are at Esalen. 
access to the natural spring tubs overlooking the Pacific and Big Sur, 24-hour access to those. You can pay for the massage, but like, who needs that? You can just go sit in the tub. And then you get the workshop that you're doing on top of it. So oh I would always be like, oh, I can never go to Esalen. That's like for fancy rich people. Like it just, it was always this like dream of mine. And then finally I was like, I'm going to fuck it. Like I'm going to put $600 on my credit card. And then I went and I was like, oh my God, like, this is the best deal in town. Like, and like, I mean, and it's life-changing, you know, not to mention that the property is on the edge of the cliff overlooking the Pacific and Big Sur. So it's just, I went up there and I spent that weekend, like I didn't even really do the workshop I had signed up for. I just spent the right weekend with that book. And that's what I do is that sometimes I just, you know, now my new thing is I go to the Lux in Brentwood, which has really good deals on rooms because of pandemic. And it's like, feels really safe and clean and socially distanced <laughs> and go hide away there. Okay. You just, can I say you just made my dream come true because I have been wanting to go to Esalen. So I, I'm going to do that. Go. And yeah. maybe I'll take you it up is- on the Lux too and do you like just go lock yourself in there for like a week and jam out a book or what's your process um I wish my family would let me go away for a week but there's like a I I did three nights um back in August and um and they lost their shit so I'm only allowed to do two nights now which is really funny but um and my daughter is actually coming this weekend because she was so mad when I went last time and was like very very upset about it so the third night just got her we're just not I think this has been a rough year for I mean children I I mean I signed up for the parenting contract I joke I did not read the fine print about fires floods and pandemics like parenting in a pandemic like my husband and I still particularly as former addicts always kind of feel like we're play acting at this like adulthood thing and like the fact that we're parents and like we're responsible for lives but like the pandemic has definitely been like you're going to prove your mettle now motherfuckers like here's parenting at like a whole other level and so I think it's been really hard. So I've had to really be here, but I'm taking my daughter this weekend and she has an iPad, so she'll keep herself busy. But yeah, but I'm going through this weekend. I'm going to read the novel starting probably tonight. Um, it's being printed right now. I'm going to go pick it up and um, and I'm going to be starting reading it tonight and then doing my final edits this weekend. And then it's going out to a few author friends of mine that will hopefully give me blurbs so that you know if I can get the blurbs by the end of this month, I'm actually hoping it goes out to publishers the week of the election, which is probably a hyper distracted time for everybody. But I almost feel like it's also an excellent window to talk about how we change things. So that is very inspiring. Um, And so on that note, um, my, my comedy special is coming out. It's called Inappropriate. And so I'm asking my guests, I'm using this opportunity to ask my guests, um, what do you feel, uh, if anything, is inappropriate and currently, and do you know what a solution might be for it? (laughs) When you said I was funny, I was like half asleep when I read that this morning, and I was like, there's so much inappropriate right now, Um, so much. It's funny, but actually I will say, I think um, what is being asked of parents right now without any support at any level is totally inappropriate. Um, I think it is a failure. I mean, it's like, I don't even know what country we live in anymore. And it's not even, I mean, obviously the gross person 
you know, is part of it. But it's also really, um, like I said, I'm doing this book with somebody about education. And he says, like, I'm not afraid that, like, the education system is going to look like what it looked like in fall of 2020. I'm afraid it's going to look like what it looked like in the fall of 2019. And I think that's true, like, across the board. I think it's totally inappropriate that we live in a society that doesn't have a safety net of any kind to take care of its people. And then when bad shit happens, we're just all left on our own to figure it out. And, like, that's not a community. That's not, like, a society. There's, like, absolutely nothing about that that makes you feel good about the place in which you live and that we're just all left on our own and um someone just said not wearing masks can be inappropriate and absolutely agree um but i will say like i am i ran into a parent at the grocery store the other day and he and i like had similar age kids and i said oh look we got matching baskets and he was like I just take them and drive. And he was like, he lived like an hour away and he was like shopping at the bonds in our neighborhood. He was like, I don't know what else to do with them. I can't be at home with them anymore. I just put them in the car and drive. And I'm like, that's like what we're left with. Like there's no extra funding to help us. Like we have kids at home nonstop. We're all fucking losing our minds. We all have jobs. Like, and it's really hard. I think in the working world, like the people without kids and the people with kids, like, you know, like it's so like never has that felt more black and white in terms of like what we're going through. And um, and yeah, to live in a world that can't support or figure out a way to help us. Um, I mean, and not just parents, I think all of us, but like that's where, you know, um, the survival of our species depends on our ability to raise children and keep them alive. And so that's why, that's why they put kids in ads because it, it, you know, pulls a biological cord around survival. And it's just hysterical that we've just been left to fend for ourselves. So and completely inappropriate. What do you feel might be a solution for this? Money. (laughs) Funding, funding, Fucking, fucking money. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, but that's where I think like it is, it's not just like, you know, it's not about that fall of 2020 is so bad. It's that fall of 2019 was also fucked up. It's that the entire system actually doesn't have safety nets that like we have the type of access to care and the type of like community where there are just as we have like doulas where we have like a maternal network of people. I mean, I live no, we live nowhere near family. I mean, that's part by choice because we come from families that trigger us and aren't healthy to be around. And so, um, but at the same time, you know, we, we also, you know, but it just feels like, yeah, there should be more financial supports to give us more choice and how we're able to take care of each other. Um, because it just ends up being, you know, I screamed at my five-year-old yesterday in a way that was completely inappropriate. And the entire reason why is because I've just got so much on my back that like, I can't, I can't respond in a way that is like as kind and compassionate as it should be, because like, it's like you're living in a vice, you know? So, um, that's why when you asked how I'm doing and I was like surviving, you know, there's a lot of wonderful things going on. I think a lot of us are making some really deep and, um, life changing choices in this time period. But I think we are also doing that, um, really because we just feel like the, the rubber is hitting the road and there's, um, and there's no, uh, there's no cushion in between, you know? Yeah. So it feels like a nerve with no myelin sheath. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. I think uh, there's going to be, there's a lot of change afoot, much needed change. Yeah. Hopefully. Um, 
what is your own personal trauma that you've overcome and turned into creative treasure, if any? What comes to mind? Um, oh, I have a, you know, I have an easy story. My dad was a um, international drug smuggler and was in prison for most of my life. So <laughs> what? Most of, most of his life, too. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I grew up in like a very like weird but safe home. I mean, that's my husband and I both say like we, we grew up with loving wolves. Um, I was raised by my mom and grandma and um, and they are still like, I mean, they call me every day. I mean, they're wonderful human beings and they love me as much as any. They love me too much, probably, I would say. Um, but my father was always the source of that was the backstory behind everything else in my life that might have looked normal was I had this very abnormal backstory. And um, so in the 70s, starting in the 60s, my father started out as just a, a, a drug dealer in, you know, Golden Gate Park during Haight-Ashbury and then began smuggling weed over the Mexican border. They would actually pack um, tractor tires with weed. And my father was like a super strong swimmer. So he would swim it across the border from TJ to like San Diego. And that's how he began. And then they started trafficking in from Mexico. And then he got busted and he was sent to a prison in Mexico. This is very, I'm giving you like the longest story in the shortest amount of time. Um, but he, uh, during that time, he was in this Mexican prison. Mexico had decided, this is probably like 1969, Mexico had decided to put all of the drug smugglers that they caught in the same prison. And <laughs> it was a brilliant idea. It was in Sonora. And so they basically networked. It's where like all the early cartels were born out of. People got to know each other. I know that is a that book. That is a book. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I know. Um, I start, I did have a book. That, one of the reasons why I didn't have an immediate book number two was that was going to be book number two. And um, my aunt, who is still alive, my father's sister, begged me not to do it. And my father was so traumatizing for her that I just, I didn't need to, you know, he always put his profit before her and I didn't feel like I could do the same thing. So, um, I chose not to write it and, uh, she might be more amenable to it now, or I might just be something that I need to wait until she passes. Um, you know, she's an older woman. I'm not, I'm by no means not waiting for that day. I love her a lot, but, um, I just, I also respect her too much to do that. But so I do say though, I would love for Narcos to do it. If I could just like sell it to Narcos and then they do their version of it, like that would be awesome. Like, so I don't, you know, they just go buy the life story. I don't have to be the person that writes it. So, um, so anyway, my dad became, um, he basically through that prison, um, landed the rights to Jamaica. And he, when he came out, um, started dealing with Jamaica and ended up getting a deal with the prime minister at that time. This is back in the 1970s, late 1970s, um, with uh, Michael Manley, I think was the prime minister's name. And he was the sole trafficker out of Jamaica into the U.S. Um, of marijuana um, from like the late 1970s until the early 1980s. And when he was arrested, um, Reagan had just come in and was trying to make an example of all the American smugglers. And so um, he had the book thrown at him and he ended up getting 66 years with no parole. And he um, he later got that reduced because he was helped out. Do you remember the movie Blow? Yes. With Johnny Depp. Yes. So that's the story of George Young and how George Young brought down Carlos Eder, who was the 
pilot for Escobar. And my father met George Young in a detention center in Tallahassee and hooked him up with the FBI. And that's how that whole story happened. And so my dad's sentence got cut in half for participating in that takedown of Carlos Eder. And he ended up serving 25 of the 33 years that he was given. So, wow. Okay. By the way, first I have to interrupt just to say, I forgot to warn you that at an hour IG live cuts off. So this okay. is going to cut off any we'll wrap up minute. <laughs> we can wrap up or we can keep talking, but I'm sure you have other stuff to do. So, but if you don't, you can come right back and we'll keep talking. Um, what, uh, so how did you, how did you overcome in one minute? How did you overcome that, that trauma? Oh, How did you um, overcome or I, process? A lot of therapy. Um, you know, I think for me, the biggest piece was going, um, and I'm, I'm, I, you know, if you're comfortable wrapping up, I mean, I think this is, I can end here to say, you know, that story obviously drove a lot of things in me, which was one, it was really horrible to experience the outcomes of it, but also incredible to come from such a interesting background. And, um, and I think that in the end, I came to accept that, like, I was in the best position possible that my father, as much of as it was a tragedy of justice that he was put in prison for that long. Like my dad was not a safe person to be around. Um, most drug smugglers are not like, that is not like he wasn't a good father. He wasn't a good husband. He really wasn't a very good person. He was a narcissist addict, alcoholic. And the fact that he was in prison, um, and he didn't do any of the things that one does to get out of prison early. Um, you know, he kept our real world really safe, you know? So as much as it was a traumatic backstory, it really wasn't part of my front story, you know? And, um, and so I got to really create my own life and getting sober was a big piece. You know, I had worshiped him a lot. And then when I got sober, I got to really confront who he was and his failure to show up as a parent. Um, and I mean, I ultimately made amends for some things in that relationship, but the biggest piece was actually like getting to just see him for who he was. And, um, he died when I was, uh, three years sober and I was on my way to therapy when I found out, um, he was out, he had been released from prison, but he was back into the drug smuggling game and at 63 years old and he had had heart disease, prison food will do that to you after 25 years. And he just died from a heart attack in his sleep. It was the most peaceful thing the man had ever done. And when I went to therapy, my therapist said to me, you know, you can have whatever experience you want with this. And that includes relief. Mm. And it really, like, to me, um, it really was that piece of recognizing that, like, we can decide when we want the trauma to end, you know. And um, later, as she said, when I was dealing with other issues in my family, you know, she said, they can't all die for you to get healthy. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was just kind of like, can everybody just die? This was such an easy way to get out of this. Um, that, so. that just gave me chills. Thank you so yeah. much for saying that. That that gave me chills. I love that. And that is, you know, I'm all about like, yeah, like having the experience that you want to create. Yeah. No, it is. And it, it really showed me that ultimately, you know, I always go, I posted this the other day, the Viktor Frankl quote, that the last of the human freedoms is our ability to react in any given situation. You know, ultimately we choose how we react to it. And I think 
um, you know, there's a lot of systems and things that drive us and histories and traumas. And it's not to say we always get to have clarity around that reaction. I know I don't, but I know that like, that is the last of my human freedom is that choice. And, um, and to get to choose to have such a big reaction in that moment of relief to someone dying was just, you know, it completely just, it shifted how I looked at my story. It shifted how I still manage it today and manage conflict and, and grief. And when, when bad things happen, you know? And so, um, so yeah, and certainly, uh, is, has been a huge source of creativity. Um, you can't come from that interesting of a story and not want to tell interesting stories. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, totally. I agree. And it's, it's what a blessing to have that rich backstory. Not a lot of people are, are just wanting to be writers who have no drug dealer in their backstory. Yeah. <laughs> So you're, yes. you're very blessed and fortunate. All right, yes. Kristen, where can, where can people find you and all the cool stuff happening Absolutely. with you? Absolutely. Um, you can find me at kristenmcginnis.com or at storyboxing.com um, in order to access the coaching and courses. Uh, and you can find me at Kristen McGinnis on um, Instagram has become far more, I, I guess, normal for me. I don't know. I'm still feel like I'm too old for social media, but I'm figuring it out. Awesome. Well, you can, you can find Kristen and, and, and take advantage of her talents, um, in all those places. And thanks everyone for tuning in today. Also wanted to let you know, my comedy special inappropriate is available for pre-order at the link in my bio or melindahill.com. And you can also subscribe to this podcast for free. Let's process this where we talk about overcoming trauma and turning it into creative treasure and the creative process and also all the inappropriate stuff happening in the world. Kristen, thank you for dropping thank by you. today. It's good to see you. I'm jealous, so that, you. jealous that you live in Ojai. I'm going to call you Come about visit that. us. Okay, yes. I would love it's to. It's amazing. It's the pandemic bubble. I say, I wouldn't <laughs> pandemic anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> I, are you next to a waterfall? We're close enough, yes. We go swimming in water holes and rivers on the regular. It really is. You would have no idea the world is burning. It's a special place. <laughs> Damn it. All right, Kristen. Talk to okay, you soon. Thanks, have, a have a great day. Bye. Bye.